absolutely need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education. About segregation. About humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Tops Market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. On the program today, a Black History Month program with perhaps one of the people. If you're talking black history in Buffalo, you've got to, got to, got to talk to Dr. Peggy Brooks Bertram. She is here with us for the balance of the hour. And uh, if you don't know the name, you probably have not heard of the Uncrowned Queens or Uncrowned Kings Project or community builders. Uh, we will get to all of that. She's written f- at least four books. She has two PhDs. She has pulled together, along with uh, Dr. Barbara Siegel's Nevergold, a massive database of people from Western New York in the African American community who have played a role in building their community. It's an online resource that is truly amazing to go through. It's, uh, it shows the real stories. I, I think if you're talking about black history, there can always be stories about events, but this shows the stories of individual people and their contributions. It, it's it's quite a project. Dr. Brooks Bertram, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the importance of all of this. Uh, and I know it's kind of a rhetorical question, but I think it sets the table for us. Why teach black history? Why is that perhaps important in, in any sort of way? Well... The origins of mankind came out of Africa. There's no way that we cannot teach black history. The um, It's important to understanding how we got to where we are in the world, how people moved around the world, the impact that black people had as they moved around the world, the impact that they had as others came in contact with them in Africa. And then finally, how to uh, teach children the value of the history of any group of people, not just black. So it's very, very important to understand who we are and where we came from. Why do children need to hear that? They need to hear that because they need anchors. You need to know, who am I? Where did I come from? And um, and one of the ways I kind of addressed it, in, you know, when I had a few minutes extra was uh, I wrote a book of five books, actually, of children's literature. And it was called Africa on My Stairs. And where I wanted young people to know that there are not only 54 countries in Africa, but you here they are. And let's let's just put them on an old fashioned stairwell. You know, starting with uh, each night as I climb the stairs, my mind wanders everywhere. All sorts of places as I mount the stairs to go to bed. Uh, 
like Egypt, my step number one. And the others followed quick and fast. Chad is third, who'll be the last. Molly, Gambia, or Ivory Coast. Oh, I wonder what y'all like the most. It seems I've skipped step number two. I'll make that Ghana. That should do. The next will be is Benin and then Sudan. I must remember to shake the sand from my shoes before I step on Swaziland. My number nine, I'm getting close. I wonder what y'all like the most. My mother says there are many more, but my steps are only ten. So tomorrow when I climb the stairs, I'll just name my steps anew. I'll have Botswana for number one and Ghana for number two. That's how you teach children. That's tremendous. That's great stuff. And, and there are four more books to carry the rest of it. And and I I love that. It's one of the things, the other things I need to finish. Well, before the program started, we were chatting, and I was amazed. I asked you, so so how did you get into this field? And you told me a story that has origins in the Buffalo school system oh, yeah. far earlier than I think anyone was aware. This idea of making sure that instruction is culturally relevant, the idea that we need to make sure that there's material in the curriculum mm-hmm. um, is something that has certainly been embraced with a new vigor in the past several years. Mm-hmm. But when did it start? Because the date that you gave me was really surprised the heck out of me. Very early in the late 1980s. I came here in 1986. But by 1988, <clears throat> Gene Reville, who was the superintendent then, mm-hmm. He had hired a professor, Asa G. Hilliard, from Atlanta to help build an African infusion into the existing curriculum. Nobody was trying to tear it down, but we were saying that if you can talk about every, you can say Columbus discovered America, then you have to talk about the role that Africa played in discovering the Olmec civilization and, and and the role of the Native Americans here. You have to be able to do that. And so he was really a for early thinker in that regard. And in this committee, I mean, I can see the faces of us sitting around those tables in a cold room on Saturday mornings. Um, so many who who are gone who are gone, but they brought so many skills. Um, the librarian Sharon Holly, Karima Amin, who was a poet mm-hmm. and writer. Oh my goodness, Eva Doyle, Musa Hakim, um, Bruce Cosby, all kinds of people, and we we just loved every moment of it. Saying this is what you need to say about Africa, and quite frankly. When you look and see what people are now trying to say that you cannot say about black people, what you cannot say about Africa in a curriculum for fear someone would be offended, oh, they would have died if they had sat in front of that committee. Hmm. Because it was a wonderful time. Every Saturday morning, we had our children with us. It was really quite an affair. What kind of difference do you think it made? For a long time, it made a big difference because, one, we had the Buffalo Teachers Federation in support of us, Phil Rumor. The people were artists came in. They were designing jewelry. People came in. They were, you know, making clothes. They were looking at all the kinds of things African people did. They uh, and and But most importantly, they said, this is, we need to put this into proper perspective. 
who are the solid historians who can talk about this? We had Ivan Van Sertema come in, whose book, They Came Before Columbus, to talk about the role Africans played in the Americas before Columbus. And that really, you know, sparked my interest. There were, um, oh my goodness, all kinds of writings. And again, Eugene Reville helped to move that along. But the Buffalo Teachers Federation was right in there with us. And it's interesting because if you mention the history of Buffalo education and Eugene Reville and Phil Ramore in the same breath, what comes to my mind was the big, strike, big the big <laughs> strike. They did not always get along with each other. Oh, no. But on this topic, it sounds like they were united. Yes, they were united. And every Saturday morning, <clears throat> we would wind up at City Hall or over at the Science Museum. And agencies were talking to one another. The Science Museum, at which no one talks about now, is that in 1901, the Science Museum, all of those things were put together. But they, they house all of the artifacts of the of the midway particularly what we were interested in is what happened to all the things that the black people made the africans made when they stayed on the midway and they're in the science museum and the pan american exposition of 1901 is kind of the origins of your other big project the uncrowned queens project traces back to absolutely. that world's fair absolutely tell me the tale well, it was a group of women. They were all white to begin with, <clears throat> and they were looking to develop projects that would, um, you know, to uh, celebrate the uh, um, that time, the Pan American Exposition. And um, we were invited. Barbara and I were invited. Uncrowned Queens didn't exist at the time. Mm -hmm. We were invited, and we said, "Well, there has to be a project here representing." black people because on the midway there was an entire um, um, program put together where Africans were brought from Africa to live on the midway in their in bringing their building their own uh, um, tents or what huts to live in and to be able to do things that they would normally do so you could actually see them in living color. And that was not documented, so you and Dr. Nevergold said, let's do we something. said, let's do this. And we had brilliant programs at the, the Science Center, and we got them for the first time since 1901 celebration to bring out all the artifacts that the Africans had made on that midway. Leather goods, gold goods, bone all sorts of things. In the context of a world exposition, the Pan Am Expo, having different tribes, different people from Africa on display makes sense. But I also wonder if, if today that would not be seen as maybe a little insensitive. Oh, it would be very insensitive because Buffalo really wasn't ready for everything that happened to them. One, a number of them died from exposure Mm -hmm. because they were required to dance naked almost on the midway, and it was in November. Mm. You know, so uh, the um, uh, some of that wasn't really well thought out at all. Uh, Barbara and I went and found many people who lived on that midway. One of them we found uh, an Eskimo family that had lived in the igloo on the 
Barbara went to... Um, How did you find them? Did they stay here? Did they locate here after this? No, we did the research and found out and traced them to where they to went. To wherever they ended up. Yeah, and we did mm. the same with the Africans. You know, where it, it was just amazing. So there was all of these people living on the the midway in the middle of winter, you know, for the purpose of showing off for people who were coming to see the rest of the world. Right, and in the Delaware Park area along Fordham Yeah. today. Yeah. How does the research into the Africans on the Midway become the Uncrowned Queens Project online? Because in the, there were hundreds of things going on all at once. And at the same time, remember, I had, I had found out about Drusilla Dunge Houston a few years earlier, and um, we will get to her before the end of the program. Sure. You are a scholar in her works. Yes. Probably, if not the, the only. Okay, I was going to say that, but <laughs> I'll only. let you go there. The only person that has studied this woman, and we will we will uh, talk about that. She was a poet. She yeah. was an author. Yeah. She was an activist in Oklahoma. Yeah, in Oklahoma. Okay. All right, we will get there. Let's put a pin in that and, and put it aside. But tell me more about how the Midway ended up being this massive database of community builders? Well, <clears throat> I remember us spending an enormous amount of time in the library looking up the old Coria newspaper mm -hmm. because there was a lot written about the Pan Am experience. Black people invited, uh, set up um, programs where they invited black women's groups from all over the country. And they organized it, and those people came here. Uh, we, one of our books is devoted to... Um, the work that Du Bois did, uh, because he, he was also involved in... William E.B. Du Bois, yeah. the Niagara Movement here in, in Western New York. And that right. was very much tied up with all of this. Which, down the line, ultimately, sort of, I mean, there, there are some permutations there, yeah. but became the founding of the NAACP. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And Barbara knows a lot about that. She spent a lot of time with that. I... We we went off in different directions because there was two of us, and so each and we had each had a, something we were interested in, and uh, Barbara went in that direction. I looked at the science museum, um, the school programs, um, and other kinds of things that you know that people were doing on the midway. I especially was interested in the the Africans, other African groups who that were on the midway. The um, the oh my gosh, the historical sites overall, you know, which were I, I thought they contributed enormously to to our work, and so. But when we really got to around to Uncrowned Queens, it was because uh, I was working at the time looking at Drusilla Dungey Houston, and actually I think I recall Barbara saying, "Oh my goodness, you know this poem, Uncrowned Queens," you know. And from that, we derived our title, and that was from Drusilla Dungey Houston, written in 1917. How many people, initially it started out on Crown Queens, then on Crown Kings, now on Crown Community Builders, how many people are in the database? Close to 2,000. Wow. How many still alive with us? Oh, God, we'd have to count them. <laughs> we would have to count them, but uh, we lost a lot of people. And we we threw off a number of programs, Uncrowned Queens in their hats, and Uncrowned Queens, uh, uh, Uncrowned Queens in, in the wings for young people, uh, the Uncrowned Kings. 
And the University of Buffalo played a critical role in helping us to launch those projects. And these are biographies submitted oh, yeah. by a variety of people yeah. to tell the story of African Americans in Buffalo that need to be told, need attention. And what's most fascinating about it is the fact that our website is unlike any in the world. Why? Because you can go to that website and tell your own story online, save it, go back and correct it if you need to, add a photograph. You can do all of that. You were Wikipedia before Wikipedia. We were. I'm telling you. <laughs> you know, we were. We, what did Barbara used to call it? Um, something along those lines. But that's what we were. And I and I was the one that was always keeping account of how many people were coming to the site. This was way back when you had to do also the imaginations to get a count. You yeah. don't do that now. No, right. You don't do that now. And, and I was keeping up with it. And at one point, we could get as many as um, a million hits a month. This In is, what year was this, 99? Oh, this, no, no, no. This was, it was a little later. We okay. were at UB at the time. So that's why we could do that kind of account. Yeah. What do all the people have in common? Why do you feel it's necessary to tell their individual stories? Well, first of all, all of them were African American. Oh, okay, sure, that was a given. Yes, yeah, so right. all of them were. But what they did was they were people who had distinguished themselves, either, and they either talked about it or wrote about it, or they didn't say anything at all. So it was a wide range of people that, you know, we've, we got the stories on. And, and and when you look at the books, you'll see that we grouped them. They were either educators, social workers, business people, actresses. You know, they were in the theater. They were in the sciences. So you could go to any one of our books, and they were all broken down according to, to categories. And in the process, do schools use this? Do kids now have role models? Or is it really more than that? Is it just a way to document the richness of the community? Both. Actually, both. And what is very interesting now, what we need to do, uh, a lot of things in terms of really moving uh, into the digital world to such an extent that other kinds of things can happen that didn't happen before. You couldn't you couldn't get connected to Facebook because it didn't exist. You couldn't get connected to, you know, messaging and that Instagram, mm -hmm. you know, and we're working on that, you know, and that that's a big thing to do. We need a lot of help in doing that, but nobody else in the country is doing what sure, we're doing. Sure, sure. Dr. Peggy Brooks Bertram is with us, an author, longtime advocate for the teaching of black history, and, of course, one of the founders of the Uncrowned Community Builders database. Really, I almost said website, but it's so much more than that. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, the Uncrowned Queens Institute for Research and Education on, uh, on Women, Inc., is the mother load, and it is from that organization, the 501c3, that the that website springs. Other things grow, namely Uncrowned Community Builders, a project of it, just like the big program that was conducted at the Historical Society the other night, is looking at pulling out those people who are still with us, 
but very old. <laughs> All right, let, we'll touch on that in just a, a bit after the break because I know you guys did have a, a presentation called Say Their Names yeah. at the Historical Society. We'll get into that after the break. Dr. Peggy Brooks Bertram is with us. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Join me, Joanne Folletta, music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra and WNED classical music host Mark Swartz as we talk about the music that inspires me, the BPO, and all things classical. Listen to WNED Classical at 8.30 each weekday morning to hear Joanne's Classical Corner or catch the replay at 5.30 p.m. PBS Kids fun and educational content is available wherever you are in Western New York, whenever you want. Live stream the channel at wned.org slash pbskids. And while you're there, you can play games, watch videos from your favorite shows like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, Molly of Denali, and Alma's Way. And you'll find resources for parents and teachers. Visit wned.org slash pbskids today. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And we are continuing our talk with Dr. Peggy Brooks Bertram from, among other things, the Uncrowned Community Builders Institute. You and Dr. Nevergold had um, a session at the Historical Museum this past Friday Mm -hmm. called Say Their Names. Tell me about it. Well, Barbara conceived of the idea of looking at the older group of, uh, of our, you know, historians, looking at them, you know, and showing that there is an urgency to documenting history, that for the elders and, and those people that we know and who are on our database, it was time for us to take a look at them, identify them, and be able to celebrate them while they could see that they were being celebrated and that we understood and appreciated all that they had done. And by pulling that all together, so many people came up, a few hundred people, I'm sure, if not more, showed up, and we're very happy to to know that we hadn't forgotten them. We knew that they had more to say, and we wanted to hear it, and that and that uh, and, and Barbara stressed the urgency of that, and uh, and so that's what made that program so valuable. And each one of them told a tale. Oh yes. Each one of them had a story to tell. Wow. And th- they arranged for um, photographs to be taken and videos to be taken, and they're all housed at the historicals, at the History Center. Share a little bit of the stories they told on Friday. Well, they told the story of how their mothers had gotten involved in things that they didn't necessarily view as historical, you know, setting up programs in the community, doing all sorts of things. And, and, and to have those respected and have people talk about them in public was really quite something for them. You know, and they viewed that as very valuable. This in many ways goes to something that I think uh, we have touched on briefly on this program, 
when we talk about black history, um, it's not just the Harriet Tubmans. No. It's the, I don't know, pick a name, Daniel Ackers. Yeah. It's personal stories of people who have a history. And not only do they have a history, there are people, I'll give an example of a woman named Zola Crowell, who's no longer with us. Zola had nothing to do with any of this to begin with. And when she saw um, what we were doing, Zola said, mm, I, can, I can talk about um, my great-grandmother. And so Zola started to jump in and developed an extraordinary history of her grandmother or great-grandmother. Found photographs, put it together, went to Ancestry.com, and wound up in the Library of Congress. Mm. I mean, this is right out of Buffalo. We were thrilled to watch her grow. and I mean, It was just amazing to see this. Unfortunately, she passed away not too long ago. But I'll never forget Zola Crowell. Uh, and, and she, uh, and then there was another woman named Deborah Johnson. And Deborah Johnson was studying Harriet Tubman and got involved with the Harriet Tubman residence in Auburn, New York. And they, and they were like historians, you know, it, it was like the floor was bubbling, you know, and people were just bubbling up and saying, oh, I got a story to tell. Or Florence uh, Curtis, uh, I forget her last name, was looking at the history, I think, of one of the churches in the area and just went on. And so we just uh, grew ourselves some historians that we, they were like historians in the wings waiting to bubble up. Is there a common thread in the stories they tell? Do we get a portrait of racism in Buffalo? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, they tell that story, and some people kind of whisper it a bit. Other people are more sure. you know, outspoken and assertive. And so, yeah, you see the racism. You see the color line in Buffalo. You see, uh, you see a lot of that in in the Board of Education originally, and the struggle, you know, that we ran into when we started talking about putting Africa in the curriculum. There were people who were saying, "Well, there were white teachers who said, well, this is the way you have to talk about it.'" I said, "No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not going to work." And there was one person in particular, I'll never forget it, just a wonderful historian and researcher and whatever, Alison DeForge. Oh, yeah. Alison. In fact, uh, she was one of the lives lost on Flight 3407. Exactly. Uh, we knew her very well. And we had some good fights with Allison. And I'll never forget Allison confronting me in the hallway of, um, I think it was City Hall where we were that Saturday morning, and saying, listen, Peggy. You got it all wrong. Those ancient Kushites, they didn't travel this route across the ocean. I mean, things got like that. Mm. And I said, no, 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 you're wrong. Have you read Ivan Van Sertima? They came before Columbus. Yes, I have. And I disagree with him on that. I said, well, no, 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 no. We, we don't disagree on, on Ivan Van Sertima. And so it was a lot of it. It was... The old uh, Daniel Moynihan quote, you're entitled to your own opinions, just not your own facts. Not your own facts. And we had uh, extraordinary conversations. We we knew Allison when Allison was doing her work in Rwanda and was barely escaping the country by crawling into a, um, uh, a trunk and being rescued only to, to die in a fiery crash. Right. 
in Buffalo, just yeah. getting Plans. ready to come yep. in. Yep. I mean, really something. So the experiences that we have had in doing this, and, and, and sorry to sound like I'm jumping around, but oh my God, my mind is clouded with... Because there's so much to deal oh. with here. Yeah, I hear you. And then there's Eva Doyle. Mother Doyle, as she's always called. That's right. There's right? Mother Doyle, you know, uh, doing a different kind of research, doing it in a different way, like a kind of a spoken research. And and Barbara and I emphasized the written research, you know. And Eva did a lot of writing, you know, but we did a different way of, had a different way of doing it. The, the work you're talking about is so incredibly vast that this might be a, a difficult question to, to put in a box and put a bow on it and, and answer what did you learn about Buffalo, about either the climate here or the people here that you did not previously know? Each individual story may have yeah. merit on their own, yeah. but is there perhaps a trend line that we can take from looking at these these stories in the aggregate? Well, <clears throat> I think that the African-American community in particular have been through so many hardships in Buffalo that when you come to to Buffalo, it's not easy to break into it. Even as a black person trying to break into the black community, it's not easy. And the first thing people want to know about you is, where Where did you come from besides here? And secondly, where is your church home? Oh, that makes perfect sense, but I would not have thought of it. Where is your church home? Yeah. And then when you, you – if you didn't have one, they'd say, well, let me take you to one. Yeah, come to mine. And I, that's how I got to the St. John Baptist Church. A woman named Sylvia Wright, said, who is one of our uncle and queens, says, by the way, Peggy, where's your church home? I said, oh, I don't have one. Oh, oh you yeah, do now. You do now. <laughs> and, uh, and it changes your whole life forever because in the churches – the the minister could get up and say, I got 35 PhDs in this congregation. I got all these social workers. I got nurses and doctors and engineers and all that. And they said that proudly. And so that was a base we could draw from, you know, from the church, you know, which was really, really extraordinary. And see, what Buffalo hasn't really capitalized on is the fact that each church probably keeps their own history and their and archives. And they do. And yet you have to go. When we went to the various churches, you have to dig them out. They don't just walk up to you and yeah. say, here's the record of who we are. It doesn't operate like that. You have to find things. You know, that made it difficult to be able to do that. And I also, and we also found that um, uh, and so many people in the churches had their own special stories you know, and I mean, it was quite an affair. All right. Now, I promised it earlier in the program, uh, Drusilla Dungy Houston. You are, perhaps you said, the national yeah. scholar on her life. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about who she was and why she's important to you. Well, she was born in 1876, and uh, she was January 20th, 1876. I had never heard of her until January, uh, November the 11th, 1988. And we are very intrigued by the fact that you know the specific date, the date. you heard of her. And I was sitting, That had impact on you. Oh, my goodness. And I was so confused after the presentation that I heard. 
that I couldn't go directly home. I was alone. I drove around town, and I drove to the airport, and I was saying, now, what did he say? Well, how does all that fit together? How do the Greeks fit in here? How do the Ethiopians fit in here? How? What did London do? What now, she was, and this presentation that you went to was not here? Oh, it was in Buffalo Okay, at a, at a local church. But she was of Oklahoma? Oh, she was out of Oklahoma. Okay. And originally, uh, well, she lived in several places, but the last place she lived was Oklahoma. Playwright, activist, writer? Playwright, activist, writer, school teacher, school builder, um, all sorts of things. And she, 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 I went to this, I found, I got on a set myself on a course of finding Drusilla. So I went to Oklahoma, found the schools that she built, found, um, the historical society there, which is extraordinary, uh, had all the records, some records of um, articles that she had written. She had her own newspaper. She was a really extraordinary person. And then in, while she did all of that, she quietly at night wrote about the history of Africa and got it published in 1926 called The Wonderful Ethiopians. I came across that book. And said, okay, this book needs to be updated, da-da-da-da. I did that and published it and did a second dissertation on her. And then started going back and forth to Oklahoma and discovering that the history of African Americans in Oklahoma had a lot to do with the history of blacks in Buffalo. Because after the Tulsa riot, many black people left after the massacre, they left and they came to Buffalo, and they were in the church where I was. Mm. So it was a, it was like stuff bubbling up and not really knowing it, you know. And so then I started going back to Oklahoma to uh, look for information on her, and finally found incredible documents about her in Phoenix, Arizona, where a, a relative had taken them. And she has written plays. Yep, she wrote. She wrote plays and musicals. She's a very talented woman. And, but when, what I just finished writing was a, um, this, looking at the script she wrote to challenge the birth of a nation. The only person who did it, certainly the only black person, and she challenged birth of a nation in everything that Thomas Dixon wrote. The Klansman, the book called The Klansman, mm-hmm. the book called The Sins of the Father, um, all sorts of things, and and the film with uh, D.W. Griffith. Griffith yeah. right? And I gave a presentation on her uh, screenplay that she wrote before the um, a group in London. No one had ever heard of her. At the time, you said she was the first one to speak out against Birth of the Nation. Why weren't people? I mean, it was it was it was hailed as. Uh, uh, even got, I believe, the Academy Award, did it not? Well, not only that, President Woodrow Wilson featured the film, featured the film in the <coughs> White House, and the next night, the entire Supreme Court was invited over to the Raleigh mm-hmm. Hotel to watch it. To watch it, and they said, "Oh, this is great! This is wonderful! We need to rewrite Reconstruction," and that is, you can trace the kind of issues we're dealing with today. Back to that film. You said something interesting, that there were a community of people 
that fled the Tulsa riots in 1921 mm-hmm. and ended up in Buffalo. Yeah. That, to me, says interesting things about Buffalo of 1921. Mm-hmm. If we were the kind of place that would not only welcome you, but but that you would even explore and want to come to exactly. compared to what was happening in Tulsa in 1921. Exactly. Tell me more. Well, I think that blacks went all over running from uh, from Tulsa. But they were not only running from Tulsa, they were running from Oklahoma also in general because Oklahoma had been a part of the Mississippi plan. And the Mississippi plan was that we will keep those people out of government, but keep them, and we will keep them out of the skies. They must not learn how to fly. And one of the things that Oklahomans complained about during the um, the massacre was that white people had dropped gasoline cans and fired upon them oh. from the skies. And some of those people were actually um, um, from the Marine Corps. I had not heard that before. Oh, yeah. And there's a whole book. I just got a book on um, Mr. Simmons and, you know, what he was saying about how you have to keep these people out of the skies. And Drusilla talked about it, saying, yes, that we were, there was all sorts of things dropped on us, you know, from the skies. What does it say about Buffalo? Were we comparatively a shining city on the hill or were you just a... A good place to be. I don't know. Um, I didn't think it was such a good place to be, but it was another place that was far enough away. And people, black people, had all kinds of roots that we we act as though they didn't. They never mm-hmm. had. People had roots in Buffalo. We don't know all of them. Right. But I know I was sitting in church, and a lady next to me was from Oklahoma. Yeah. And I also think, too, if you look at the 20s, there were a lot of um, social cooperatives. There were a lot of informal networks. There was Very uh, the, the, the United Negro Improvement Association, Marcus Garvey. There were groups here that were creating a space for black people exactly. at a time when other parts of the nation were not necessarily doing so. When, when black people wanted to come to the, the Pan Am Black people here opened their homes for them because the white hotels wouldn't allow them in. So you all kinds of networks were forged that some that may not have existed at the time, but out of necessity, out of necessity they grew up here. Um, and all sorts of arrangements were made to house black people to be able to stay here during the Pan Am. It speaks to the community that we had here. Yeah. And Barbara can speak. Uh, she'd done some intensive research on that whole issue, and she can speak well on that. All right. My focus, again, was on Drusilla Dungey Houston and following the trail wherever it led me. And it kept me away from other things. I mean, you just can't right, do right, everything. Right, right, because the project's large. I, I can picture that. You can't do everything. So I focus on Drusilla Dungey Houston and and her family, the things she wrote. And, and for me... To find the documents that she had in her own handwriting, you know, the errors she thought she made and how she would go back and clean them up. That's what preoccupied me and still does to this. And as a result, you are preparing to help publish her screenplay. Yeah. 
And right now, yeah, Mississippi Press is going to publish her biography at the end by the end of the year. Um, they're looking at the screenplay now. We'll see how that works. They're looking at um, a, a, my dissertation that I did on her work, and so they'll. Uh, I have a lot of things in the hopper. They're all relating to Drusilla Dungy Houston. All right. When we return from the break, we're going to bring it uh, a little more contemporary with books that you've uh, worked on involving Kamala Harris and Michelle Obama. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. All right. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff we can get to, too. We'll figure that as it unrolls here. But first, uh, we have to take a brief pause. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Learn more about the flamboyant founder of the Roycroft Artisan Community in the WNED PBS production, Albert Hubbard, an American Original, now on YouTube. He needed to be an original, which meant some people are going to dislike what you do, what you say, who you are, the ego, your way you look, the way you talk, and that was okay with him. Hubbard's story is one of love, art, and controversy set against the backdrop of the arts and crafts movement at the turn of the 20th century. A movement that railed against the dehumanizing effects of modern industrialization. Watch Albert Hubbard now on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel. Attention parents and teachers. Find free learning resources, including lesson plans and videos for all ages at pbslearningmedia.org. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Continuing our talk now with Dr. Peggy Brooks Bertram, the Young Crowned Community Builders Institute, uh, the website with all those biographies, the, the stories you've heard her tell about Drusilla Dungy Houston, but also you're the author of a book involving children's messages to Michelle Obama and a similar effort involving children's messages when Kamala Harris became vice president. And actually, they, they, were, they were not children. For either one of them. I thought they were kids and school kids writing these no, letters. No, no, no. All right, no. T- take me through the story. Forgive me for not well, having we, it right. We were in, we were housed at UB. I'll never forget. And the world was going crazy about the fact that a black man was running for president, and we were crazy too. And uh, decided that we would write a, uh, we would ask people to write a letter to Michelle Obama about what they thought about this and how happy they were and all sorts of things. And they did. We, who, who did you reach out to? Who did you ask? We, everybody, people from all over the country. And But we started with Buffalo. Mm. Buffalo women responded. And, oh, my gosh, I can't recall all the many places. But um, it was an incredible experience for us, sitting in those offices at UB and... Um, and then I said, let's go and see if we can get somebody to publish them, these letters. And the State University of New York agreed to do it, the publishing arm of it. And so they agreed to do it. And it was just wonderful. We traveled all over the country, 
you know, talking to groups of women. What an experience that was. And then we made an audio tape of all of those uh, uh, letters that were written. And um, so that was the, the uh, uh, you know, uh, the the material for Michelle Obama. And what was the exact title of the book? Uh, 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 Go Tell Michelle. Go Tell Michelle. And the second... Um, the second book I did alone, and that was Kamala Harris. On the Michelle Obama book, at the time when President, ultimately President Obama, yeah. was running, his race, obviously, and I, I mean it oh, small yeah. r, was oh, yeah. the, the, the campaign, the, the, his candidacy, yes. was huge. It was a big deal. And yet you said, let's not focus on him. Let's do this story with women and Michelle Exactly. Why? Because, first of all, the the guy that we talked to about publishing the book said, I'll publish this book on one condition, and that is that Obama has to win. So we said, okay. And we focused on Michelle because we already knew about women. We had already worked with On Crown Queens. So we, we, you know, we had a a backdrop against which we could, mm-hmm. you know, call on. So we looked at her. She wasn't going to be president. People were going to write about the president. Who was going to write about the, the wife of the president? And we thought, well, it's up to us. What did people say to her? They talked about, I remember one woman in particular, Arlette Miller-Smith. She, they wrote poems. They sent recipes my mother's pecan pie. They talked about um, the fact that they had had relatives who had been enslaved in the same part of the country where Michelle had come from. They talked about everything. And then fast forward, if it was certainly relevant to talk about Michelle Obama as the first black first lady, Mm -hmm. then it's even more important to talk about Kamala Harris as the first black vice president. So the other book. Yeah, that book was really incredulous because it wasn't, I wasn't interested. I I put that book together uh, along with a friend of mine, Jennifer Parker. Jennifer did all the digital We've we've had her on the program, I know her. And, um, but I decided that there were black women all around the world who wanted to know something and be involved and it was true. Women wrote letters from 11 countries. It's 11 different countries. 120-some letters. There was a group of black women who were expatriates in Europe. They wrote letters. We got letters from women in India and some near the hometown of Kamala's mother. Mm. We got women from, I mean, like I said, 11 different countries. And it was really extraordinary. They wrote poems. They 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 uh, talked about what it felt like to see themselves in her. Those sort of things. I think you might have just answered the question. If you had such a diverse and large sample, was there a common theme? Was it just a celebration of her being elected? I think it was... Um, it was a celebration of her being elected, but she was also 
a woman who belonged to uh, what they call the um, a, a group of black sororities, the Divine Nine. Nine. Right. And so, so many of them were in those groups, and uh, and then there were a group of women called the National Association of Black Storytellers, and so they pitched in, and so it was all kinds of groups that that I recall that um, became involved, and um, but it was it was funny because I. Hadn't what we didn't do in the first set of books, but in this working with Jennifer, Jennifer says, "No, oh, no, here's what we got to do. We got to do uh, videotapes in the morning. Every morning you get up, you got to do a videotape." <laughs> and I got up every morning and I would say, "Good morning, Vietnam." <laughs> And we would get started, and people were calling in, and I was did the editing of the letters, and so it, it was really quite a story. And Kamala Harris does have a, a couple of buffalo ties, yeah, notably because of the top shooting. Oh, she's, yeah. She's worked with the family. She's visited here several times. Let's talk a little bit about that. I, I hesitate. You've done so much, and and the work is so vast that I I hesitate to say, okay, now we're going to talk about tops. But I think on this program, maybe we need to. I think that, and I hate to say this, because I got some other projects I'm trying to wrap up, but I am entertaining a project of uh, hearing from people and putting it all together so that the world can see that Buffalo had something to say about this. And it wasn't just about the loss of the lives, which we can never make up for, but we still need to tell people how we feel. What does it feel like? I mean, like, personally, when that happened, I have a photograph, and I went back to the photograph of me and Barbara sitting at the very front of the top store, when it opened, and they opened with what? A celebration of uncrowned queens. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting right at the front door 20 years ago when Topps supported us. Topps has always been in this community and helped. And I said, oh, my God. So recently I was thinking, saying, look, it's one thing to hear these people in the court, you know, and they were profoundly wonderful speakers it was I, I couldn't I couldn't turn away from it. And so we need to we need to do more to to be heard. I've talked to a couple of people and possible publishers about what interest could be had in looking at these stories in a different light. It's just not them being in a courtroom and, you know, saying, you know, these this and that, but rather they have some stories, very specific stories. I mean, like, I used to go to a store right on the, right near there. Mm -hmm. Eva Doyle talks about that was the one Saturday that I didn't go. Yeah. You know, so it's those kind of stories that I think need to be heard. Talk more broadly, and and I don't want to minimize the loss of 10 lives, but talk more broadly about some of the community stories that linger. The things that linger is how people talked about seeing their relatives dead in the street. And I don't think we talk enough about what that means to a person, what that means to 
explaining that to a child or a grandchild. We don't talk about that. And I think it's, um, it, I know it's very, very painful, but you have to say it. You, I mean, I know I looked at, you know, this young man in court, that somebody coaxed him into going and buying a rifle and saying it was okay to shoot people. Who did that? Who does that? Where where are those where are those people hiding? They have to be hiding. Where are they? We need to find them and we need to talk to them. We need to talk to the you know the the, vic- the victims families about what would they like to say? You know, and you, we need to document that for posterity. Here is what, what did a 10 year old say when the grandmother was shot down and he was around? We, we don't seem to know how to package that. And would the value of that be what? The value of that would be to, for somebody to be able to talk to somebody and reach on in a cabinet and say, that's the story of my grandfather. Okay. That's how I viewed him. This is what I saw happen to him. So it would not be the painful reenactment of the death, no. but it would be stories of the people. Of the people. Exactly. Because those people, and, and stories that those people may have had to tell, that they told to somebody. What did your grandmother say to you? Um, we We... I haven't sorted it all out yet. I just know it must be done. All right. More broadly, what tales need to be told in the community? The narrative that this program has certainly picked up has been segregation, disinvestment, all of those things that made it easy for someone like the shooter Mm. to come and find a place like Buffalo to do his deed. Uh, What does Buffalo need? Well, where I come from in Baltimore, Maryland... And I tell people I was born in an alley house in the shadow of Johns Hopkins University, which figured prominently in my life from the beginning. And what happens to you in those areas that are segregated? How the structures you live in changed who you were. How the neighborhoods you lived in changed who you were. That the people from the, running from the Holocaust in Germany had more, you know, cachet than I did. How the Bethlehem Steel would bring white Czech citizens to, to Baltimore to give them opportunities to live and to work that they wouldn't give to people who live there. The same thing has happened here. The same thing has happened here. And because we don't talk about it, it just keeps on. But if you were at the program the other night, there were a number of people, white, who are so supportive of the work that we do. And, and of course, of the blacks who are so supportive of what we do. You know, it's very hard to say, what next, Buffalo? Exact, except, in my mind, I just know how to tell a story. And I would go to people and say, let me tell you a story in your own words. You need to hand your story down. You need to be able to take a book and give this to your grandchild and say, this is my story about my mother, and I wrote it. 
And we can all learn from one another in the process. Exactly. Dr. Peggy Brooks Bertram, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. If people need more information, how do they at least access the uh, biographies? Oh, yeah, they can access them. They can go to the Uncrowned Queens Institute. They can go to Uncrowned Community Builders. Just Google it and it'll pop. Just Google. All right, fair enough. We are out of time. Thank you again for being here. Thank you. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO HD1 Buffalo and WOLN Olean, WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR stations. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.